Um, my name's Phil, in case anyone doesn't know me. Um, I'm the assistant pastor at Northern Road Church. Uh, it's my privilege and challenge to preach this tricky passage today. Um, so let's pray as we begin. And I'd really encourage you, if you can, um, keep a copy of Mark chapter 13 open as we're going through it, um, either you know, in a paper Bible or use Bible Gateway on the internet. Um, and it's the NIV version, New International Version we're using. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we really need your help this morning um, as much as ever. <laughs> this is a hard passage and we pray please that you give us your strength and help to concentrate, to stay alert, to understand what Jesus is saying to us and to take it to heart. And we pray, please, would you graciously take away distractions and help us to focus. And would you glorify the name of your son? We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. OK, well, some people sneer at the idea of God judging sin. Some people even sneer at the idea of sin itself as a concept. Some people are horrified at the idea of God's judgment, as if it were somehow immoral. And even for many Christians, it can be deeply uncomfortable when we have people who we dearly love, who don't accept that they need to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. This is a hard and emotive topic. And we've seen that and we've felt those reactions recently when Christians have rightly pointed out in the Bible that plagues such as the COVID-19 pandemic are a warning shot from God. They are a wake-up call to sit up and take note that he is not pleased with human rejection and rebellion against him. He will punish it, though he is mercifully restraining the fullness of his judgment now to give people time to repent. But why should we take seriously the idea of God's real and impending judgment in this day and age? Well, at least one reason is because he's graciously provided advanced warning time and time again in the history of the nation of Israel. And each time that judgment has come to pass with, on the unrepentant, both in Israel and in the surrounding nations, with terrifying results. And perhaps the most decisive of those judgments is the one that Jesus warns of in Mark 13, in our passage for today. Now, as I've said, this is a difficult passage. Preachers and scholars have differed in various ways in their interpretation over the years. And I can't pretend to have all of the finer points sussed out now. You might actually have heard it preached differently to how I'm going to take it now. And if that's you, and if you're left with questions at the end, please do feel free to email me and we can chat about it. Or email the, the, the church via the hello at mrc-oxford.org email address. What I'm pretty confident about is the main thrust of Jesus's words and warnings. And this is what I'm going to focus on. 
So in verses 1 to 31, just to give you an overview, he foretells of a terrible judgment that would fall on Jerusalem within the lifetime of his hearers. It's a judgment that goes hand in hand with Jesus's own exaltation as the sole focal point of God's power and reign in all creation. The sole focal point. And this judgment actually happened in AD 70, when the Roman army laid siege to Jerusalem and leveled the city. All that was left of the temple was one of the foundation walls of the Temple Mount, the Wailing Wall, which you can visit in Jerusalem today. But none of the temple itself actually survived. And since the latest plausible date for Mark writing his gospel was around AD 60, so 10 years earlier, he wasn't just making up Jesus's prediction after the fact. Still, you might ask, what, what's the relevance of this judgment today when it was all over and done with 1,900 years ago? Why should we be bothered? Well, it's relevant as a sobering foretaste of the judgment to come when Jesus returns to judge the whole earth. And he warns us about this in verses 32 to 37. So come with me now as we unpack this chapter and let's see the implications for us today. I'll start with some much needed context, but then we're gonna move pretty quickly through to the climax in verses 24 to 27. We just don't have time to do the whole chapter in detail. Some of you will be glad that I'm not going to attempt to. Um, if you are left with questions, again, please email me directly or, or via the church office. Hello at mrc-oxford.org. So here we go. Jesus has spent most of, the cha of chapters 11 to 12 in the great and beautiful temple in Jerusalem. But now in, in chapter 13, in verse one, he leaves it for the last time in Mark's gospel. Now, his disciples can't hold back their admiration and their praise for the buildings. But Jesus bluntly declares that the entire temple will be thrown down. This would have been unthinkable to his disciples and probably to anyone else who overheard Jesus. The temple was the pride of the Jewish nation. It was revered and adored as the central focus point of God's reign and his presence in the world. And it was the only place where true worship could take place in accordance with the law of Moses. But we should not be surprised by Jesus's stark words. All through chapters 11 to 12, trouble has been brewing. Jesus arrived at Jerusalem and the temple in a manner deliberately designed to display his kingly status as Israel's Messiah, their chosen king. And since Jesus has spent much of Mark's gospel doing things that only God can do, we should realise that he also comes as God himself. The Lord has returned to his temple, just as he promised in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. 
but far from receiving a rousing welcome from the Jewish leaders. He was met with challenges to his authority and plots to discredit, arrest and kill him. Equally bad, he finds that the temple has become as much a place of commerce as a place of worship. And many of the teachers and rich people gathered there are no better than hypocrites, only out to glorify themselves instead of God. So when Jesus curses the fig tree in chapter 11 and tells the parable of the vineyard in chapter 12, he is warning of the impending judgment that is hanging over Jerusalem if they do not repent. With this in mind, we should expect trouble when we see Jesus leaving the temple in chapter 13, verse 1. And all the more so because of the stage directions. His departure to the east of Jerusalem, where he places himself opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives, is highly evocative of Ezekiel chapters 10 to 11, again in the Old Testament. Those are chapters where Ezekiel sees the glory of God leaving the temple and settling on a mountain to the east prior to Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians in 587 BC. All of this is to say we should not be surprised when Jesus announces his sentence on the temple in, in verse 2. But we should understand what a big deal it is. And this is what Jesus explains to us, particularly in verses 24 to 27. So let's rattle through to that point now. Now, in verse four, the disciples ask when the, uh, sorry, when the temple will be destroyed and what the warning signs will be. And we've got to keep those questions in mind through all of the confusing and cryptic details that follow. Those questions frame Jesus's response, along with the declaration in verse 30 that all of the events described up until that point will take place within the lifetime of the disciples' generation, which AD 70 was. And as an aside, that's one of the main reasons why I don't think Jesus is talking about his second coming in verses 24 to 27, though he does come to that. So how does Jesus answer the disciples' questions? And again, I'm going to rattle through the first bit. Well, firstly, in verses 5 to 13, he graciously tells the apostles what won't be the signs. He also warns them about what they must persevere through while they are waiting for the real event to come. And it's worth noting that these events fit much of what happens in the book of Acts. And I think it's, it's likely that verse 10 finds its initial fulfillment in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because there, Luke records that the, the Jewish people from every nation under heaven were staying in Jerusalem when Peter first preached the gospel publicly. But back to Mark 13. Next up in verses 14 to 23, Jesus tells his disciples what will be the sign that destruction is near. The abomination that causes desolation. And it's a reference to the prophecies of Daniel in the Old Testament, where Daniel foresaw the temple being defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes, 
in 167 BC. He was one of the successors of Alexander the Great. And Jesus implies that something recognizably similar to that desecration is going to happen again before the temple is destroyed. And that will be the sign. And Jesus graciously warns the disciples and any in Judea who will listen that they should flee when they see this sign or they will not survive. Do you see his kindness in warning them? Finally, having told the disciples that the sign, uh, sorry, having told them about the sign that distraction is near, Jesus gets onto the event itself in verses 24 to 27. And it's worth noting that he is still talking about those days as he has in verses 19 to 20. He's not jumped forward to some event in the distant future. Still, you may be scratching your head. What have crazy signs in the heavens or the son of man coming on the clouds got to do with the destruction of the temple? Well, in the Old Testament, there are lots of places where the prophets speak of strange events in the sky as symbols of cataclysmic events on the earth below. They symbolize times when the established world order is irreversibly overthrown by God in his vengeance upon the wicked of the earth. Now, two examples are given from Isaiah in the footnote for verse 25, if you've got the NIV Bible there. And Jesus seems to be drawing heavily on Isaiah's language. But another example is Joel chapter 2, verses 10 to 11 where again, the same kind of language is used of judgment upon Jerusalem. So in verses 24 to 27, Jesus is talking about regime change. And he's talking about regime change in Jerusalem. The old order is about to be thrown down. No longer will God's presence dwell among his people in the temple at Jerusalem. No longer will his good government or his blessings be mediated to the world through the physical nation of Israel. And no longer will Israel enjoy privileged status as God's people based on biological descent alone. Why? because so many in ethnic Israel have rejected their God and King in Jesus, tragically. And because the leadership of Jerusalem and the worship of the temple have proved so morally and spiritually bankrupt. And because the whole religious order of God's covenant with Israel through Moses has proved powerless to produce the kind of righteousness that God desired in his people. So the temple, as the key symbol of God's presence and rule under the old covenant, will be thrown down. And at one and the same time, Jesus, the son of man, will be exalted, as we see in verse 26. Again, Jesus is quoting from the prophet Daniel, this time from chapter 7, verse 13. He, Jesus, is the one like a son of man who will be led into the presence of God the Father. 
He is the one who will receive all authority, glory and sovereign power over every nation on earth. And he will be worshipped by people from every nation. This is the flip side of the coin. As the temple goes down, Jesus goes up. So the destruction of the temple will be the sign for all the world to see that Jesus is now supreme. God's good reign in creation and his mighty power will now be centered in Jesus. And his reign will be mediated through the new Israel, which Jesus founded when he called the 12 apostles. 12 apostles in place of 12 tribes. Now, I want to be careful here. The Jewish people have not been forgotten or rejected entirely. Absolutely not. They are the foundation of this new Israel. They will continue to be co-heirs of God's promises, but now with the Gentiles also brought in. And Jesus himself is the Jewish Messiah first and foremost. Make no mistake. Nor have God's Old Testament prophecies about a restored Jerusalem and a glorious new temple been abandoned. They will be fulfilled, but only in the new creation as foreseen in Isaiah chapters 65 to 66 and Revelation 21 to 22. But membership of this new Israel, God's people, is no longer based on ethnic descent or on your geographical location inside or outside a piece of land or the temple. It is based on your response to Jesus. Do you remember the Jewish teacher of the law in, in Mark 12, verse 28? He asked Jesus about the greatest commandments, and he seemed like a good guy, didn't he? He understood that God wanted to see love for him and love for our neighbours far more than he wanted to see elaborate worship ceremonies and rituals. But do you remember in verse 34 that Jesus said this teacher was close to the kingdom of God, yet not actually in the kingdom. That teacher demonstrates the reality to us. Simply belonging to ethnic Israel or understanding the law of Moses is not enough to get you into the kingdom of God. And by extension, simply trying to be a good person by the standards of this world is not enough either. To the extent that cultural standards reflect God's perfect moral law, given in the Ten Commandments, any set of rules that we use to measure ourselves will highlight our failings as much as our virtues. They will highlight our need for God's forgiveness. And so it's only by rightly recognising Jesus for who he is that anyone will gain entry into God's kingdom. That's what Jesus went on to imply in Mark 12 in verses 35 to 37. Because Jesus is not just a son of Israel's greatest former King David. 
He's not a king or even a prophet or a good moral teacher. No, Jesus is David's Lord, the King of Kings and God himself. We see that in in verse 31, where he says his words will never pass away. Well, in the Old Testament, back in Isaiah, in uh, chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, the only person whose words never pass away are God's. Jesus is God. And this is the crucial point of application for anyone listening who does not follow Jesus as their saviour and Lord. The only way to have your sins forgiven, to be welcomed by God as one of his people, and to receive eternal life is by bowing the knee to Jesus as your rightful king and by worshipping him as your God. There is no other way. And just as judgment came upon those in Jerusalem who rejected Jesus and even nailed him to a cross, so judgment will one day come upon everyone who rejects Jesus across the whole earth. This is sobering, even terrifying. And I don't say this at all lightly, but we cannot afford to ignore Jesus's warnings. The temple in Jerusalem and the whole city with it was actually destroyed in AD 70. Jesus's words proved to be true. So we must not doubt his words in verses 32 to 37 of Mark chapter 13 either. Here in in verse 32, he stops talking about those days and he turns to that day or hour. I think he's probably referring to the day he's just mentioned in verse 31, when the current heaven and earth pass away. The book of Revelation, again, at the end of the Bible, shows that this will be the day when Jesus returns. He will make all things new. But what will he do first? He will return to judge the earth and to complete his kingdom, all his enemies being put under his feet. And unlike the destruction of the temple, we are not promised any warning signs. So for anyone listening who is not following Jesus as your saviour, your king and your God, please, please realise that you need to respond urgently. It's no good thinking, oh, I'll look into it or read the Bible when I've got more time. It's no good thinking, I just want to live my life a bit more and do my own thing first. You may not have that chance. Jesus's words mean he could come today. Then time will be up and you will have to answer to him as your judge. Yes, for your sins in general, but most seriously of all, for rejecting him. And for not taking his words seriously. And those who reject him, the Bible makes very clear, he will reject. For all eternity. Please don't leave yourself in that danger. As we will see two chapters later in Mark, 
Jesus didn't just callously throw out some warnings and then storm off. He lovingly submitted himself to the very Jewish leaders who had rejected him to be falsely accused by them and sentenced to death by the Roman governor. He could have struck them all down. He is God. But he humbled himself to serve even his enemies by dying for them on the cross as a ransom for many, for all who will receive him. And as we'll see in Mark chapter 15, nearer to Easter, he wasn't just suffering physical death as he hung on the cross in agony. He was bearing the wrath of God at human sin. Jesus bore that judgment so that you and I don't have to. So please, if you are not following Jesus currently, will you ask him today to forgive your sins? Will you acknowledge him as the King of kings and Lord of lords and follow him? And if you do, will you tell someone? Tell another Christian or get in touch with us as a church so that we can help you to follow him. He doesn't call us to do it alone. How about those of us who are following Jesus, though? What does all this mean for us? How are we to be ready for his imminent coming so he doesn't find us sleeping, as he warns in verse 36? Well, the commands Jesus gives three times in verses 34, 35, and 37 is to watch, to be alert, to be on guard. So first and foremost, that means we should be expectant, ready and waiting. We mustn't be lulled into a false sense of security by the comforts of modern British affluence. We mustn't put prayer and growth in godliness on the back burner just because lockdown is hard and it seems like too much to deal with right now. We need to think and act and especially to pray as if Jesus really could come today, which means seeking to live out what he has taught us. What we've seen through Mark's gospel and indeed through the whole of the Bible. So, for instance, were you challenged by the wholehearted devotion of the poor widow in Mark 12? who was possibly the only person Jesus could find in the temple who demonstrated that she loved God with her whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I was challenged by that. And I was similarly challenged by Jesus's words to the rich young man and to his own disciples in, in Mark 10, in verses 17 to 30. Sacrificing our wealth and comforts now out of love for the poor and for the advancement of Jesus's kingdom, it's really hard. I really struggle with that. But Jesus is adamant that it brings surprising reward both in this age and in the age to come. Treasures in heaven, he says. That's not because we deserve it. It's just because God is incredibly generous. 
gives us that extra incentive as if we should need one to live for that day when Jesus returns. So instead of storing up treasure on earth now, which will rust and rot and wear out and get lost or stolen or fall out of fashion, are we storing up treasures in heaven? My money won't be any more use to me when Jesus returns. And that could be today. So I have to ask myself, why am I unwilling to use more of it now to bless those in need? Why am I unwilling to invest more of it in gospel witness that makes Jesus known more widely before it's too late for other people? Of course, Jesus may not come back in our lifetimes. So we do want to be wise in stewarding our resources so that they last, whilst also trusting in God's provision. But if you're anything like me, I suspect that the temptation is to keep too much for a rainy day or to spend too much on present comforts and pleasures. Maybe for you, like for me, Jesus's imminent return doesn't always affect your priorities enough. Now, that's just one example of how Jesus's imminent return should cause us to be alert and prepared. And I've run out of time. <laughs> yeah, we could go through Mark's gospel and find many other teachings to shape our priorities and our behavior now. So can I challenge you over the coming weeks to read back through Mark's gospel and see where Jesus' teaching challenges you afresh? Will you ask him to show you where you could live out his teaching better now, given that he is coming soon? And can I encourage you to pray that he will challenge your heart and shape your priorities? so that you increasingly want to do what he wants. Because he doesn't ask difficult or impossible seeming things of us and then just leave us to struggle in our own power. As John the Baptist declared at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the greatest resource for change in all existence, and he gives it in abundance. All we need to do is ask for more. So to finish, will you join me this week in asking Jesus's help to live today in light of that day, the imminent day of his return? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we know that our hearts are hard. We know that it takes sometimes years of hearing your word and of your spirit impressing things upon us to really take these things on board. We know that we're just making gradual progress. But please, Lord, this week, would you help us with renewed vigour, with renewed 
seriousness of intent to live in the knowledge that you are coming back and it could be any time. Lord, help us not to be sleepy. Give us that alertness and give us your strength, we pray, by your spirit. And please have mercy on any for whom this, this news of your exaltation is new or has really caused them to ask questions today. Lord, we ask these things in, in your holy name and for your glory. Amen.